I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is writer and military veteran, Sharon Rubino-West. Listeners should be aware that we may, during the course of our conversation today, speak about issues of sexual assault. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Sharon Rubino-West was featured in the Nebraska public media segment, The Warrior's Pen, in 2015, discussing the importance of writing and the veteran experience. She has published a piece in As You Were, Volume 2, a publication of military experience in the arts, the same year. Her piece, Into the Unknown, was read in performance by Alfre Woodard at the 2016 Gala for the Writers Guild Initiative of America East in New York City. Her most recent work was published in From Warriors to Warrior Writers in 2020. Sharon will be wrapping up her memoir at the Key West Literary Seminar with the assistance of Butman Nguyen in January 2022. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You have had, um, as anybody that's watched your TEDx talk will know, and I would encourage people to do that, a fascinating life. And I think in some ways, um, a courageous and inspirational one too. And so I'm very much looking forward to the culmination of that to this point in your memoir. And I know we'll touch on that later, but to set the scene and perhaps to connect to your memoir, I'd love to ask you to share a little bit about your childhood, please, Sharon. Okay. Um, I will just read a paragraph. The book is going to be called The Stuff We're Made Of. My first memory, standing in a crib in a dark bedroom. I am furious, screaming tearfully, throwing my empty bottle across the room as a door opens a few inches. An arm slides through, drops a full bottle of milk into the crib, and grabs the empty bottle that has landed on the floor next to the door. The door closes with a loud click. I don't remember if it is the arm of a man or a woman. Mom said that I couldn't possibly remember that far back, but I can. I just didn't have the words to articulate what was happening at the time, nor was there anyone who cared to listen. I am named Sharon after my mom. Any resemblance beyond the name is purely coincidental. So that is a first memory of my life. And um, it goes on. my eldest sister, I'm second in a, in a position of a family of four children, uh, was very sickly when she was young. And I remember after this, the next memory after this experience that I just read to you is my mother telling me, I believe I was four years old, and she said, your sister is sick. She needs your help. She needs you to help her tie her shoes. You can help her. You can do anything. And that kind of set me up for the rest of my life to be a helper, which I've had to temper from time to time and and really set some boundaries here and there. But I believed I could do anything because mom told me at four years old that I could. (laughs) So I think a lot of the things that I've done in life was with that I can until I find out I can't type of feeling. That paragraph you read is compelling in the sense that it raises questions in my mind. And so that, of course, as a reader would want me to pursue the course of, of that narrative. Um, but because of the, the, the memoir is in progress, I can't do that. So I'm going to ask you. So you made the comment that you share your name, Sharon, with your mother, but there ends the, the similarities. Correct. Um, is, is that because you're very, very different people? Is it because you aspire to different things or have different strengths? Are there, are there tensions existing in, in the relationship? Well, we are very different. However, as I aged, I realized we are very much similar, which was kind of scary. But also, as my mother has now passed recently, 
And as that transpired and we went through that with her, she passed from cancer. Um, I realized how beautiful some of her differences were and how some of the strengths that I have that she actually gave me um, by telling me that when I was young helped me to get her through that. And it became a beautiful fusion for me of what our relationship should be. So it was really um, just a beautiful way to end things. It sounds like you learned a lot from your mother. What about your sister then? So you said that she is the older sister. Right. But it's interesting then to be a younger sibling looking after, you know, stereotypically the roles are reversed, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And the interesting thing is my mother was a great Catholic and we are Irish twins. So for two weeks every year, we're the same age. So my birthday is July 18th, and um, I will become my oldest sister's age until she has her birthday on the 27th of July. So um, really more interesting in that role reversal when we're actually twins for a couple of weeks. Just a really strange dynamic. Yeah. My sister is brilliant. She maybe wasn't as physically caught up with everybody her age because of being in the hospital and out and stuff, but she uh, speaks five languages. Several of them are self-taught, not a typical thing for an American, especially if they weren't in the military at the language school, which she was not a great writer. Um, Very, very good. She started doing being in plays when she was in junior high school. So um, she has a photographic memory. And I think that's why the language has come so easy to her. I would love if she could pass some of that on to me. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, not. So you also painted this visual in words of a hand and arm coming in and coming out of your crib, and it was a genderless arm. Yes. Tell me such as you can about you know your relationship and, and the role of your father in these early years. Um, yes, my father was there somewhere, um, and my parents had a kind of a tumultuous relationship. They married young, like people did back then. Um, and then they divorced after 13 years. So they divorced in the middle of my beginning of teenage years and the struggles that we all go through as a teenager. Um, but really, for me, that signifies he just kind of wasn't there. Men back then worked all the time when he wasn't working. He had golf league, he had bowling league, he had pool league, and then he'd be outside doing the yard when he wasn't doing that. So I don't remember my father being around for much of anything unless it was in the house fighting with mom, (laughs) honestly, (laughs) you know, there were some good memories, definitely, you know, Christmas and those kind of things, but he just wasn't really present in my life. Any other siblings? Yes. I have a younger sister who is, I'm very close to her. We shared a room as kids and all of that. So we really bonded. Um, And then we have a younger, the youngest um, is my brother, whom my entire childhood until he was born, I remember hearing, and this set me up for a lot of things. I'm going to have a blonde haired, blue eyed baby boy, and he's going to be perfect over and over and over. And then after mom had him, I guess it didn't matter about really practicing Catholicism anymore because that was the last child. So <laughs> she got her blonde haired, blue eyed baby boy. Yeah. But being in the role of the first, whether I cast myself there or was put there, um, that really stuck. And it, it figured into my relationships later. And as I looked back at my life and wrote, I realized that. I guess the act of memoir writing is, is an act not only of recounting what happened, but also reflecting on right. what happened. Exactly. Yeah. I'm wondering in that spirit, if, if there are one or two moments in your childhood that you do look back on and see as formative to the rest of your life. Yes, there's one in particular. My parents had already been divorced for a couple of years and um, I kind of raised myself, but I still, mom was there and I was out with a group of girlfriends. We were probably in ninth or 10th grade. And we had gone to, they used to have this thing in Omaha called Sprite Night at Peeney Park, and they'd have bands there and stuff outdoors. And one of my friends brought a couple of beers and we were, oh, we're going to have a few beers. And, you know, Um, but then they decided, and I think two of these things stand out for me as significant. They decided at the end of the concert, I lived about five blocks up the street. They were in another neighborhood. 
and their mother came to pick them up and said, well, you know, they all agreed. You can walk home. It's close. You'll make it. It's fine. And I said, yeah, that's fine. Um, in the course of walking home, those five blocks with people streaming out of the concert and all, um, a person opened their side door and I was, you know, I'd had a beer and they said, I'll give you a ride home. And I said, no, that's okay. I didn't know this person. It's not that far. Um, he said, sure. And he grabbed my arm and pulled me in the car and I was assaulted. Um, I, the only thing I could think of was to get away because I've heard the statistics where once somebody gets you into a vehicle, it's a very good chance you won't be back. I did get away from this person. I was all disheveled. My uh, shorts were on backwards and inside out. I, I just ran home. And I thought as I approached the porch, what am I going to say to mom? And what is she going to say to me? Because she was always in that front room, um, you know, watching the news and stuff at that point. So I walked in the house prepared for anything. And mom just looked at me and didn't say a word. And then she said, how was your concert? And I said, it was all right. And I'm trying to run, make a beeline into my bedroom because you have to walk through that living room. And my mom had scriptures on the wall and <laughs> she was, you know, um, and I walked into the bedroom and I thought, when I looked down, I realized everything was disheveled. I didn't realize it till that point. I thought, did she not see that or did she just not want to address it? And I was almost more hurt by that than the assault itself. And so after something like that happens to you, you feel like there is no safe place in the world, especially if a parent doesn't pick up on that and offer anything. So um, I think that really set up what happened to me later in the military. So many days is yet to come. Many times has come to pass Too many moments put aside Getting out alive Getting out alive Writing letters in the sand Lost to oceans gentle That does raise all sorts of questions and themes, but I, I feel like holding from that just at the moment and maybe circling back, as you've said, this sort of sets the stage for the next movement in your life, which is to the military. Right. How did the military yeah. sort of arrive for you? So for me, I just put that incident in the back as uh, you know, much as I could at that time and just kept moving ahead with things. I had always worked on the high school yearbook, the newspaper. I had put out a little literary gazette when I was in junior high. Writing has always been a part of my life. It's always been my go-to. Um, and my junior year, I delay enlisted in the Marine Corps because I had gone up to the recruiter's office to sell them an ad for the yearbook. We were all supposed to help with the yearbook by selling a few ads, you know, and, and I thought, I'm going to go see these guys because they're always up in our hallway and I think they can do something for us. So I was prepared to go up there. Um, my selling was we're going to start with the top you know, offer and then work our way down because if I start at the bottom, you could stop there and how do I work you up to the, to the spot? So I walked in there and there were two recruiters. They were in dress blues. One of them looks at the other and you could just see him mumbling like, yeah, yeah, I'll get this. So I just said, I'm here to sell you an ad to the yearbook. You're always at West Side. That's where I went to high school. And um, I thought that maybe you could 
buy a page. And he said, done. And I thought, well, that was easy. So I, you know, I was all excited about that. And then he said, what are you doing when you graduate? And I had already thought about what I wanted to do. Neither of my parents graduated from college. And I said, well, I want to go to college at some point, but until then I want to do some traveling, traveling and things. And I said, and I want to be a journalist. And they said, oh, well, do you know that you can write in the military and you can travel and see the world too? And I said, really? And they said, yeah, and you get paid. And I was like, wow, this sounds like a great bridge until I'm ready to go, you know, to college. So uh, I think the day after I turned 17, I delay enlisted. I signed up. I was ready to go. Uh, My mom had to sign for me and uh, I graduated early. I graduated in January so that I could go to boot camp February 20th. So I was ready to go, going to be a writer, going to see the world. What I didn't realize in my naivety at that age was that they said, you will be interviewed for this uh, public affairs position is what it was. And, you know, you'll be highly recommended. So when I got to boot camp, I uh, did the interview, not realizing that, yeah, I'm going to be up against people who have journalism degrees who have already been through college. (laughs) So needless to say, I didn't end up getting the public affairs position. What was the reaction of your friends and your family when you did sign papers to join the Marine Force? Um, They were pretty shocked. We have military throughout our family, but no women up to that point. And then um, they were like, why did you pick the Marines? Well, um, you know, the dress blues always get you. <laughs> and, you know, uh, that and the, the history and tradition that I had learned about just talking to the recruiters when they had been up in the hallways and stuff, um, that really sunk in for me. That really felt like a staunch, safe place to be. So, yeah. <laughs> so at this point, you're probably still fairly young. Um, yes. 18, 19? 17. 17. 17. Okay, 17. So you're 17. and this aspiration you had, you know, you're, you're, you're physically uh, exerting yourself to astonishing extremes. And you have this vision, though, of, of a, a career that could be, and then you realize or you're told that that isn't actually what's going to happen here. And I, I don't know how crushing that might seem. And if you've, I mean, despair might be the wrong word, but you tell me what the word is. Like, how did you feel at that moment when you, when you realize, oh, how I thought this was going to play out is not, and I am in. Yes. Yes. Um, we took the ASVAB to get in. We had to take the ASVAB again in boot camp. My scores were the same. They said I could have qualified for languages, some of the other things, intelligence, but they had a, a need for communicators and communication electronics. So that's where they put me. And I found that out two weeks before I graduated from boot camp. That's when they tell you what you're going to be doing and where you'll be going. So yeah, I was in shock. I was like, um, well, at this point we had been harangued enough by our drill instructors that I knew there was no arguing it. So uh, yes, they said, you're going to be a communication electronics. I didn't really even know what that was. Um, They sent me to 29 Palms for uh, school where I was there for two months and I graduated second in my class there. And then um, I found out at school that we had to type, take typing classes again. I already had all that um, for the keyboards on the equipment that looked like it was left over from Vietnam, which I actually commented that. And then they said, yes, and it's probably broken and you will learn how to troubleshoot it and fix it and use it. So it was a lot about doing electronic things as well as communication. Um, we had ticker tapes still. Uh, yeah, crazy ASCII tapes. Um, we, it was a top secret clearance that I had for that. Um, we passed messages, that kind of thing. But I ended up going from that uh, 29 Palms for two months to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And that was where I was stationed. I'm wondering what you were feeling, like how, I mean, th- there's doing the work. The idea of it might be inspiring, but the practicality of fixing what seemed to be Vietnam-era quality equipment doesn't sound very rewarding. So there's the work that you're doing, but I'm also wondering, how are you feeling? Uh, or were you just too young and, frankly, just enjoying life? 
I was enjoying life because I hadn't traveled a lot. We went up to Minnesota for our summers. We went to South Dakota one time when I was a kid, but I'd never been on an airplane. So everything from the point where I left for boot camp in um, you know, South Carolina through school was an adventure. Um, I remember I thought I was going to save money after I graduated by taking the bus out to California. And that was a three-day trip. So <laughs> when we hit Omaha as one of the stops, I got off the bus and I went to off it because I could get on there now. And I said, I need to buy a plane ticket from here to California. Cause I was like, I am not getting on that bus, but um, all of that, all of that was adventure. The people I met along the way, the gal in Chicago that called me um, a, a killer because I joined the Marines. I'm like 17 years old. What have I killed? You know, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I, you're allowed to have your beliefs and I'm allowed to have mine. But um, I was at that point patriotic, protecting my country. I had made my oath and I was proud to be a Marine. I'm still proud that I was a Marine. It will always be with me. Um, but beyond the skills that I was learning for the job that I was going to do was leadership. And I really, from boot camp on, began to learn about leadership. And then when I got to my duty station, I found out I was the only female. I did not even think that this would happen, didn't realize the ratio in the Marine Corps. And I remember you, you check in on the base to all these different buildings that you're going to be using. And I stopped at one of them and there was an officer there. And I said, sir, I think I'm in the wrong area. And he said, why is that? I said, because there are no women Marines here, sir. And he said, well, there are now. And looked right at me and I thought, oh boy. So more of a responsibility to me was conveyed at that moment, which responsibility was the theme of my life pretty much. So uh, for two years, I was the only female in that unit and leadership paid off. I was able to promote pretty quickly. I was in charge of the comm center that I was running. And then I began to have issues with a few of the Marines there. But for the most part, all of the Marines in my unit were like big brothers, you know, and, and we all had each other's backs, just like they told us it was supposed to be in boot camp. I feel like the ratio maybe now is something like 16 to 17% of military service people are female, I think. Overall, in the Marine Corps, it's still Overall. about nine, yeah, 9 to 11. And, and at the time that you were um, at your duty station, it was probably much lower. Oh, yes. Proportion. Yeah. yeah. So leadership skills, um, but you've alluded to the dark shadow approaching in your experience with the Marines. So if you don't mind me asking, would you share that, that trauma? Yes. Um, I was doing very well. I had promoted the corporal. I had about a year left in my four-year enlistment. And um, I was assaulted one day by another Marine, sexually assaulted. And I did not know where to go, who to talk to, what to do. Um, I did know from seeing other people and hearing other things that um, if you report that assault, your career is over. And at that time, I had been thinking about reenlisting. I wanted to do 20 years. Uh, the moment that assault happened, I thought, well, there goes that. It's out the window. And I talked to uh, two male Marines that I was very good friends with after this happened. And I said, I don't know what to do. I'm scared. I don't know if the, this person's going to come back and find me. What do I do? And they said, well, our leadership isn't real strong. Um, there had been a few incidents where people were saying things. I would come into the comm center at night to work and I was in charge and I was the only female there all night long and find smut magazines and all this. And I just said, if I see any more, I'm throwing it away. You know, it's not going to be here. I don't want to see it. I won't tolerate it. So I was getting pushback anyway. And they just said, well, I don't think our command will support you. You can't say anything. And one of them even said, I've got a 357 at home. If you want to take it, even unloaded, just have it there in case anybody shows up. He said, if you point that out the window, that's a pretty, pretty good message. And so I actually at one point had that for about a month because I was so scared. Um, but I didn't, couldn't tell anybody other than them. I couldn't go get help. Um, I know it affected me. I know I had, you know, just my nerves sleeping at night, wondering, wondering. Um, and you do a lot of, because of the culture 
not only in our society, the rape culture, but the culture in the military at that time was um, if something like that happens to you, it's your fault. So I spent a lot of time just trying to keep it under wraps, finish my last year and uh, get out with my honorable discharge. And I had been doing really well up to that point. So yeah, that's, that's how I handled it. So this might be a good time. I, I don't want to downplay in any way, shape or form the extent of this trauma. Mm-hmm. But I do want to talk about the work you've done since then yes. that, that looks back on that and who you are now and, and how you've reconciled is a wrong word, but, but how you have come to terms with in your own way, the experiences of your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk it about has it created bit. resilience. Yes. You can either let it defeat you or you can use that as a strength to go forward. And that's what I chose to do. It took me 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to jump forward 30 years, but what I do yeah. want to ask is about the Warriors writing program. Okay. I would love it if you would share a little bit more about what is that program. And then maybe we can talk about, you know, what was it you were doing in terms of your writing and what did that process do to and for you? Yes. So the Nebraska Warrior Writers have been around for about seven years now. Uh, We started in 2014. It was actually a partnership between um, the VA in Lincoln, the uh, Nebraska Humanities, and the Nebraska Writing Project. Um, There was a $10,000 grant that they had written and received. um, And the VA felt like this is a great chance for some of our veterans to get some of the stuff out, but also to bond with other veterans. So that's how we began. We ended up having a group in uh, Grand Island for a while, and we still have a group in Omaha now, and also the original group in Lincoln. I have been back and forth to both the Omaha and the Lincoln, but it has been very therapeutic for me and for the veterans. One uh, Vietnam veteran in particular I can think of who told them you know, he's shared with us, I told him, I'm not going to write anything about my time in Vietnam. And by the end of the first year, he was writing up to that point, what it was like to be in boot camp and all of that. And then he wrote a piece about his return home, flying, flying home from Vietnam. So he was starting to get all around it. And now he's able to write about it, talk about it, go out and do presentations. So it, it was a very healing experience watching the Warriors Writers Workshop program that was on uh, oh, the Nebraska Writers Public. Yes. yes. One of the teachers, Beverly Hoistad, she said, the funny thing about writing is you don't realize how personal it is until you start writing. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm wondering, what were you thinking 
when you were either invited in or found out about this program, what were you expecting going in? And then what did you actually discover? Well, for me, it was a miracle that it was even happening because I had spent um, a couple of three-day sessions in New York City with the Writers Guild. And so the kind of bonding we did, the kind of real sharing, it takes a lot of courage to write the truth. Um, And so, you know, people that think this is just a head thing, it's very, it's cerebral, but it's physical, out of the head, through the arm, onto the paper. Um, And sometimes you get closure by, after you write that, balling it up and throwing away, it's gone, it's out. So I wanted that experience and I couldn't keep going to New York to get it. So um, then I got this invitation do you want to write in this new group? That's like, yes, this is what I've been looking for. So um, it was everything I could have wanted and more. It really increased my writing skills, but it really helped me open up with other veterans too. You, you mentioned the Writers Guild in New York. When was that first moment that you used writing as a tool for yourself to explore, explore the world, explore your interior life? I actually had done writing throughout my childhood, uh, little short stories about my life or things I made up, you know, interesting characters, um, kept journals, all of that kind of thing, but it was never shared with anybody, not the stuff about my life. And when I got to um, the Writers Guild, we were all there as caregivers. My son was actually a combat veteran in Iraq. So I came as his caregiver And it was so great to meet these other women. And there were a few men there that were caregivers and find out that I'm not the only one that thinks this way. I think that is the key to writing groups is that you come together. Writing can be a very solitary activity, but when you come together like that and people will tell you as we workshop pieces, I love the part about that was such a great set of words. I want to hear more, those kinds of things. And that's the positive reinforcement. You need to keep doing it and to keep being vulnerable. You have this experience of, of always being interested in words, always been interested mm-hmm. in imagination. And yes. that seems to be a part of who you are. But you've had some pretty traumatic experiences in your life. And I'm, I'm wondering if post-exiting the Marines, if you had a different relationship with writing, the act of writing? Yes, I wrote throughout uh, my healing period is what I call the the time it took me to finally get help for myself. And I realized that I could fall back on helping others because I had always done that. It was a safe space. And, you know, it was something that I knew that was needed. So I'm still doing some things that were the norm for me. I didn't realize at the time I was so busy doing all of it that it was avoidance too. Um, But I would still do my own private writing. And then as I started getting into these groups, I realized not only is this healing me, it's another form of still helping others. And we're healing each other with our writing too. So that's really, and I would say that came about because the only reason I got involved with the, the Writers Guild was again, as a caregiver for my son with Wounded Warrior Project. Um, But my son had had a traumatic incident, which I was in the middle of. He had had a flashback and I did not realize what was happening as he threw me against the wall. And I went to break my fall. He, I had a hoodie on it. I didn't realize in the dark in a hoodie, I looked like an insurgent. That's what I've been told. So I got picked up and thrown across the room about three times. And I finally broke the fall and actually broke my wrist. And so that's when I was like, I've got to write, I've got to write, I've got to get this out. That was some of the work that I brought to the Writers Guild to work on. Yeah, it's, it was very healing to have other people hear that and not be horrified. That's what I was always afraid of because they had been through some similar experiences. I mean, it was so horrifying to people back here at the time in 2006 that they wanted to press um, charges on him, felony charges. And I kept telling them, That was a mistake. He was trying to get out of a flashback. You know, if you haven't seen this before, you're going to see it again. And I was a big advocate and I still am. So that was one of the things that made me want to write too, was I need to get this story out. I need to help people understand that this is not an isolated incident. 
So my writing kind of changed then too. Memoir is a big deal. You're not writing necessarily essays or a story that has a more condensed frame. You're trying to pull together a, you know, a very large body of life experience. Right. And in the act of writing it too, we we mentioned earlier. Not only is it recounting, but but there's reflection happening too. What was it that made you think that a memoir project was something you wanted to embark on, and how are you going about it? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, that was the typical Marine thing. Do the hardest thing first. Oh, I'll tell you, it's not been something that you write overnight um, because it is pulling the pieces together and pulling out of yourself things that maybe you don't necessarily want to share, but it's part of what needs to lead to the next thing that you're writing about. Um, So yeah, that was not easy. Um, I still look at pieces and we'll see when I work with the editor in January what she wants to keep, what she wants to pull out. Because one of her books that's a memoir was called uh, Stealing Buddha's Dinner. And when you read that book, it's kind of like a book of short stories that all flow together to the point at the end. And that I think is one reason why I chose memoir is because I'm trying to make a point. Even in the um, dedication, I say um, for all of the veterans, family members, friends, and believers out there who also walk this path, May your steps be grounded in your rugby light. So I'm telling you right there that there's a journey in here and that I'm not alone on this journey. And that's, that's, I think, part of what compelled me to write it. It's not even just about me. It's about, and it never is about you with a memoir. You, you touch people's lives. And so, um, yeah, it's been interesting writing it, but it has not been easy. <laughs> Memoirs touch other people too. And I'm yes. curious how you were thinking about the ethics of involving other people about the right they have to maintain their own story, their own privacy, while at the same time, you also own yours in that right. regard. That is always difficult with memoir. And that's one of the things that we talk about in some of our writing groups. There are people who will write their entire memoir with somebody else's name in different places. And then when they get to the end and they've been able to write everything out, they go back and change it. Because if they didn't do that, they wouldn't be able to be truthful in the story. They'd be holding back because you do think, well, what is this person going to think? What is this person going to say? My truth is my truth. We may be talking about the same incident and it may look different to my sister or my mother, but I am writing my truth. I am not trying to violate or hurt anybody. This is how I remember it. Because even in writing memoir uh, conversations, of course, you can't remember word for word everything that was said, but you write to the best of your remembrance and your ability. So um, ethically, I'm not out to shatter anybody's life or any of that, um, but I'm here to tell the story as it happened to me and as I see it. How are you going about that process of not relying upon today's memory, which might be different to the memory you had last year, which may be different to a memory you have in the same event in a year's time. So as you cast back, what ways and tools and approaches are you using to try to ground yourself in something that feels to you as accurate as possible? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to narrate a lot. I want to just tell the story. So there are these stories. Um, I did not know how I was going to end this memoir. I start with my mom and that first incident, and it ends with my mom and her passing. And for me, that was the perfect closure um, because it allowed me through spending time with my mom the last three months of her life and talking about memories. And I would bring pictures in. She's like, I am in the pictures thing. I've probably taken 30,000 pictures. Words and pictures are my essence. And I believe that a lot of that was the same for her. And so um, I go back and kind of give it closure by reflecting back on how it looked to me then and how it appears now. And, and that gives it a sense of, I don't know, I'm a very balanced person. So um, some equilibrium, some balance there um, and a good way to end, I think. So a memoir writing project could be something that you just do because it's a worthy exercise. It has value in just doing it for you. And right. you could therefore just tuck the manuscript in a drawer and be totally happy with that. What is the drive for you? Do you have... Um, you know, a publishing contract. What's the business side of this for you? Okay. The business side is I definitely want to publish this for the same reasons that I wrote it. I know we are not the only family going through what we have. I am not the only person who has been through some of these experiences. I touch on being the only female in the Marines for a while. I touch on being Hispanic and my grandmother just basically hiding that whole side of our lives Um, she didn't teach anybody Spanish. She made wonderful dishes, never taught anybody how to do them. She came from Guadalajara through Texas. And that was a shameful thing. So that's part of, you know, what I deal with in the memoir. So it touches on being a woman, being a minority, being um, courageous, going through, I mean, there is so much trauma, we all have trauma in our lives. What do you do when you address trauma? And so I talked a little bit about I mean, I've been through some things and it doesn't have to crush me. So I'm hoping that this will be somebody saying, yes, this is a lot like my story. And by the end of it, she's given me hope. By living through all these things, she's given me hope. mentioned earlier the experience of being assaulted as a teen coming home and and your first instinct was how to handle the encounter with your mother and you Mm -hmm. described that to us and what I didn't ask at the time because I wanted to follow your lead into the military what discussion after whether it's years later or never did you have with your mother about that incident Um, I did talk to her about it this past year. That was really the first time my sister knew because we're like this, uh, my younger sister. But um, I I asked mom, do you recall? And I kind of laid out in front of her the moment when I walked in the front door. And she says, no, I don't remember that at all. And to this day, I still don't know. Does she remember it? And she's pushed it out of her mind. And she's not going to enter it, you know, reenter that thought process or did she really not see it? And I think to me, it would be more horrifying to think she never even noticed it. But in her mind, to talk about it would be horrifying. So that is where it stays, really, is, is where it landed that day when we came home. Now, the military experience, and I've tried to explain this to people in the best analogy I can give you is, so you go through those traumas, you get into the military, this is a safe place. We've got each other's backs unto death. And then that happens to you and you have nobody to turn to. 
that is such an utter, I don't know. It's just, you feel so alone and it feels like trying to tell your father that your brother raped you. I mean, those kind of close connections, it is so much closer in the military because we have already promised to have each other's backs. And we've been told that over and over. And, you know, the thing that you don't hear a lot about, it's just starting to come up is the males who have been assaulted. And there are many more of them per 100,000 more females have been assaulted. But in general, there are more males in the military and there have been a lot of military assaults. I see this in my work every day because I work with homeless veterans and it has a lot to do with some of their why I'm here. It's just a totally different experience when you're somewhere where you told you would be safe and you're thinking this is my last chance to be safe. This, the military's got to be it and it's not. I think I've seen in the New York Times example something like uh, one in four female service mm-hmm. members have had some encounter with sexual assault. Do you feel a little more hopeful that in perhaps a, a Me Too moment that this terrible issue is maybe at least seeing some attention, if not solution? I do feel hopeful. Um, we've been fighting for this for a long time. I was actually up on Capitol Hill lobbying in 2012 or 13 um, for the first time they were going to vote on the Military Justice Improvement Act is what it was called then. Um, and talked to you know, uh, one of our representatives and one of our senators at the time and really was hopeful. And then the vote happened that fall and it missed by two. It was voted down by two. And I was so proud that at least our senator, who was a Republican, had voted yes. And a lot of uh, the Republicans, you know, throughout were not voting for this. And he and I felt like this is the power of going up and lobbying and sharing your story. And it's painful. And that was the first time I shared it publicly. Um, But he was very understanding. You know, Um, I believe that, unfortunately, with some of the things that have happened in Texas in the past year, Um, I did do a rally last October and um, we got together women from the Women's Center of Advancement and, you know, some of the other groups in Omaha. We did a march and we went over Dodge Street and we had signs and, you know, uh, we're fighting for women. We're fighting for, again, you know, people who are from other countries that have come and served or people who have immigrated. And yet we're the people that get silenced every time we say this is not okay. It's finally I believe going to change. It's still going to take time. And the other piece that I would like to see change is acknowledging the males. Because even today you go to the VA and we now have for the first time for a year, over a year now in the Omaha area, a women's clinic within the VA, a separate place you can go. But where does a male take his needs for sexual assault? Where's the men's clinic? Do we want to make it obvious? Do we want to just, you know, kind of downplay it? but offer something because there are so many males suffering from this and and they feel like they're not even being validated. And I agree with that. So you work with veterans as part of the veteran affairs um, department. Yes. Uh, And I I always have to tell people disclaimer, I work at the VA, but I'm not speaking for the VA. Thank you for saying that. I wanted to ask you then, you mentioned being proud of being a Marine. You had that service Um, You've had the experiences you've described. How has your relationship with the military changed, if at all? How has your relationship with the idea of the principles that you said you enlisted for, Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel now about what it is to be a patriot, to be an American? Yes, Um, I still feel very strongly that we have the greatest military in the world. I hope that we can continue to maintain that. It is not only a time, and people try to say politics, it's, who's in tra- it's a time of change, not only because of COVID in many areas, but it, that's also changing the military. And, you know, we're seeing things, uh, ways to fight wars now and defend ourselves that we've never seen before. Uh, but I still, the leadership that I got out of the military, the learning about politics at an early age, but the leadership, the knowing that in my situation, for instance, had the leadership been differently, I would have probably stayed in. They lost a good leader that day. 
um, what would my life have been like had I been acknowledged by a good leader and been embraced and said, this is not okay. We want to get to the bottom of it. The strange thing about that is when they don't acknowledge it and it keeps getting passed on, um, my assailant ended up going to prison for 10 years because he assaulted someone after me and it was getting worse and worse. And he tried to appeal after two years and they denied it, but he's on a registry. That's what would happen more often because these people don't stay in the military forever. They go out there. So my biggest thing that I learned and am proud of is leadership, leadership, leadership. The speed of the group is determined by the speed of the leader. All those things are really true. And I would never be, no matter what happened to me, I would never be more proud than I am to, I'll always be a Marine. We're a different breed. We use different crayons. We get kidded about that all the time. Um, But proudest thing I've ever done, I do not hold it against the Marines. I am not responsible for the behavior of the person who assaulted me and neither is the Marine Corps, but we want the perpetrators out. So it, it does not change my love for the Marine Corps. My guest today has been writer and military veteran Sharon Rubino West. Sharon, I am so grateful to have had this chance to chat with you. Thank you for sharing with us today. Sure, I'm glad to be here. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. <laughs>